welcome to Coaching from the Sofa. I'm Shane Lord. I'm Rob Harvey. Episode 5. Let's go. Were you trying to bring Wayne Rooney to Colchester, Steve? Everyone else is on the prawn sandwiches and you're on the fries for you, Steve. I was interested in what you said about... Sorry now. <laughs> <laughs> Don't get this on Sky Sports, do you, Steve? As you say, is that, that's not the England job, is it? We're back. Yeah, it's good to be back. That sound like an Oasis song, didn't it? <laughs> what song was that then, Ben? Hello, it's good to be back, it's good to be back. Can't say I've heard that one before. Whose phone just bleeped? Not me. That's mine. I put it on silent. Sorry. Ben, come on. Seriously. Seriously, Ben. I don't like getting in trouble with the uh, MD. MD. So we've got another cracking guest this week. Let's get him in. Our guest today is Steve Bradshaw. Steve played youth football with Liverpool, Manchester City and Blackburn Rovers. Steve then went on to become a primary school teacher before moving into the world of football full-time with the job at Arsenal Football Club as a football in the community officer. This would be where he found his niche in integrating football clubs into local communities. After Arsenal, he moved to Colchester United to manage their football in the community project. Steve quickly became Chief Executive Officer, CEO, when Colchester United Community Sports Trust was born. After 13 years running the community side of the football club, he moved to become CEO of Colchester United, where he oversaw the completion, fit-out and operational delivery when they completed their move from Layer Road to the Western Homes Community Stadium. After this, Steve worked with Manchester City, North East Essex Primary Care Trust. He was Chief Operating Officer for Charlton Athletic, CEO at Millwall Community Trust and CEO for Surrey FA. Steve also has a UEFA A licence. And I must say, what an absolute pedigree of a CV that is, Steve. Absolutely uh, incredible. The great thing about CVs is it doesn't say that how well you did any of your jobs, <laughs> just that you did them. Uh, yeah. yeah, exactly. It sounds good. The, the only thing is, everything was going so well for me. And then I asked you a question before you come on, which football team you support? And your answer absolutely. was Liverpool. So you uh, were absolutely. doing so well. And you, and you replied Liverpool. So you're in Rob's yep. camp and he'll be over the moon as the first guest that we've had on that supports Liverpool. Uh, yeah, no, absolutely. And I think the... I don't know whether you saw it. Rich, is it Rich's Masters came out with the, his first interview this week? And they're now talking about curtailing the season and abandoning, um, abandoning relegation. So, you know, if you're a championship club who's, you know, in the top two in the championship, you'd be absolutely devastated. Um and as a, as a Liverpool fan, then obviously, if you ban the whole thing, we've never been Premier League winners. And it would just be gutting. You know? I've got a bit so, of a rant coming up on that, Steve. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, Manchester United had their day and it was, it was good for them. And uh, hopefully it's Liverpool's time. If you were CEO of Colchester now, how do you think you would be voting? Uh, I think well, it depends on the state. I think it's absolutely right in terms of Division One, Division Two. Um, I think having the playoffs um, 
and not having relegation is a bit difficult. But apart from that, well, and the, and the relegation standing where it is is difficult, but you've got to have some movement. So I don't disagree with that. I think you've got to allow the season to run its course, even if it's in a Cattell form, just because um, there will always be the, well, you know, Liverpool didn't win the whole season. But I think most right-minded people will say they're probably far enough in front that the chances are that they would win it. The difficulty is if you have no relegation, then, you know, you have one lot, one end of the table finished and the other end of the table not really finished. So it's it's really difficult and it's uncharted territory. So I wouldn't want to be critical either way, really. No, it's a good point. And I think it's, it, I wouldn't really want to be the ones making the decisions because, as you say, there's so many different ways it could go. But how did you end up with a career in football? Uh, I'd always, well, I'd always loved my football. Uh, I'd been, a, I'd played early at Liverpool and then got injured and then was a score at Manchester City. Uh, not quite good enough there and then played at Blackburn. Uh, so I was always involved in football and loved my football. Um, and then I was released from Blackburn when I was 18. And, um, you know, at that time, for, for kids from my background, if you wanted to go to college, you tended to do. Uh, either teaching or social work or doctoring and certainly wasn't clever enough to be a doctor and the idea of social work is amazing but very very hard work so I like the idea of becoming a teacher but in the background there was always the football piece um, I played for British colleges I was very fortunate to be involved in that um, and the coaching thing even when I was at college became really important to me so when this thing called Football in the Community started with sort of six clubs and the PFA helping to organise it, uh, it seemed like the best bit, of, all the best bits of teaching, you know, working with kids, watching them develop, watching them become, uh, achieve their potential. And at the same time, uh, it was football and the kids wanted to be there. So it was, uh, it seemed like a combination of perfect job. And uh, and I was, a guy, a friend of mine rang me and suggested that I apply for the job at Arsenal. I didn't know anybody. And I rang, and I think partly because it was such an early part of my career of, of, of football in the community that um, we were help, we were able to kind of help shape what um, what the whole industry looked like. So at that point, it was based upon people who weren't engaged in the game. So we focused on uh, working with kids from a, on a stage. We work we working with girls. We work with uh, we work with uh, young disabled footballers. And so the, the PFA's framework and working with the clubs who were very much emerging their ideas of what working with their community looked like, it was a very exciting time. Most of your career, you've been involved with community football. But why do you feel it's so important for a club to have that as, as an arm of their club? Well, going back in, back in the day, it was about reconnecting with, with uh, the fans, you know, the Fan bases were at an all-time low. This is before the Premier League, obviously. Um, England um, was a competitive England game, which attracted something like 25,000 people. And there was a real sense of disconnect between uh, traditional supporters uh, and football clubs. And the sense that, that football was unwelcoming. There was a, there was a feeling that, you know, that there, was a, there were major issues around crowd violence at that time. And it was just felt that something needed to be done. So at that point, it was almost um, uh, it was it was to try and create a positive out of a negative, and then I think that um, some of the more successful clubs 
charities developed in their own right. I'm not talking about necessarily the biggest clubs, but you know, clubs like Charlton and clubs like um, Brentford created amazing schemes um, uh, and became registered charities in their own right. And then it became, we started to look more at government agenda and clubs started to see that they could contribute. And I think the most obvious and most powerful images of QPR's contribution around the Grenfell disaster. You know, is that true football work? Uh, no. Is it the contribution that that club could make to a very difficult say, situation at the time? Absolutely. And what Andy and the guys did at QPR uh, in the community, you know, should be applauded for, you know, the rest of football, which is as important as anything that's ever been done, in my opinion. So it became, we started to look at government agenda, you know, things like, um, worklessness skills shortages and could we use football as an anchor or as a as a device to bring people who wouldn't normally achieve in those spheres and help them to uh, give them qualifications and, uh, and a start in working life um so clubs then started to make their contribution dependent upon what local need was yep um uh, so the need, for example, in Colchester is very different from the need that where I was working in Millwall. And it was, uh, you know, and the schemes developed their own personality and with great leaders like the leader at, at, at Colchester at the moment, Corinne Haynes, and, you, you know, you develop very, very um, sophisticated, quite large charities to deal with those needs. And do you begin to see benefits or have you seen fruition back into the club? So you start seeing the gains actually back in the club by new fans, new waves of supporters? Uh, in some clubs, yes. I think that the football in the community isn't about generating fan bases. It's about connecting the club back with its immediate community. Um, fans in the old days used to live in the immediate environment of the football club. Very few fans these days, it seems, who live close to football clubs actually go to the match. So... You know, there is some work to be done. And I think what the community programmes do is is show the club in a very positive light. And I think the clubs that work well, where they, where you integrate ticketing initiatives with um, with great community work, that does have a, a an ability to develop relationships with fans over time. Um, where it does have a benefit is, you know, you have all these amazing coaching programmes going out across the region. now. If if we you know if clubs see you know fantastic young players, of course they're in a position to invite them uh, to advanced programs or centres of excellence or academies as they now are. That was never the raison d'etre, but at one point I think before we before I left Colchester, something like sixty percent of the kids uh, on the academy had been seen by the community program at some point or other. So there is a benefit, but that wasn't the reason we were doing it, if you see what I mean. I remember you telling me, um, it, probably about 10 years ago, a stat about where Colchester's Community Trust ranked in terms of other clubs in the UK. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a very informal thing. It, you know, you can, it depends how you measure. Since that time, we, we talk much more about impact and measure impact. So, you know, at that time... Um, Millwall, uh, sorry, at that time, Colchester turned over some before I left in that 1.4 million pounds, which was certainly in the top five percent of clubs. Uh, so, as charities, all that money went back into developing uh, the local game, but also 
uh, as I said, you know, health programs, jobs programs, um, education programs. So that was, you know, we were we were a, a, quite a big scheme, and I, I've got to say now that it's even bigger and better in my opinion. Um, the piece of work we did around in Millwall was we worked with a, a research agency to work out what the value to the community was on a year by year basis, and the, the independent research suggested that. Um, we gave seven million pounds of the benefit back to Lewisham and Southwark um, through our work in terms of um, in terms of providing solutions and providing support systems for very vulnerable young people. So I don't, and I think you know the English Football League Trust has certainly done a piece of work, and you know you're talking hundreds of millions of pounds back into the community that otherwise the government and the welfare state will be spending. So I don't think there's a doubt at all about the contribution that football now makes. Um, I think um, the the next step is for football to sit down and really think about what are the most important issues. And it's great to see again Colchester, Colchester's response to COVID-19, you know, working, you know, providing food for local people and uh, and working with food banks and, you know, again, it's it's a long way away from where we started on the park playing football, but it's probably the most important use of that resource currently. You mentioned there, I just mentioned there that there's a lot of good investment and uh, some great figures that are being put back into the community. But is that coming from the community schemes directly, or is that coming from investment through the clubs, or is that from government funding? Or um, it's it, it, it's the schemes that were charged with, though the trust, the charities, the foundations, they're they're charged with delivering those those charitable um, outputs. So it comes directly from them. Many clubs now make a contribution to their community programs, either in terms of finance directly or ticketing initiatives or, you know, players, you know, uh, or player visits. Because, you know, if you're, if you're a young kid and you're at a soccer school and one of the local pros come along to say hello, you know, it's a big deal. So I don't think we should under, underplay the importance of the, the club's uh, contribution of. And it is partly the charities and the Premier League and, and, the, uh, and the English Football League Trust and others to lever in external funding from government or Europe or where else, wherever else, um, to do this work because you know, like all charities, you can't do it on your own. You need that. You need those partnerships and um, and you know you need also the thought leadership that health agencies and 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 uh, education agencies can bring to the table. So um, my view is where it works well. It's a real partnership and. Um, I think there are three levels, uh, frankly. You, are, you have some clubs that do stuff to the community. Uh, you have some clubs that uh, work in partnership with the community. And you have some clubs, the best ones, in my opinion, are really embedded in their community and working with uh, local people on a day-by-day basis. And you know what? Also providing some great football fun stuff for kids because that's what you, know, that's what you come to it for. So, you know, the, great, the best schemes, in my opinion, now, um, you can pick and sh- you can pick at very different levels. So sometimes we're, we're you know they'll be running soccer schools um, in the holidays. Sometimes they'll be doing some amazing work with young disabled footballers. That, that you know, Colchester when we were there, I think we created eleven female international youth internationals in ten years. You know, and Colchester at that time was you know very much you know it wasn't one of the big London clubs. Never played in the national league, so. 
you know, it 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 all depends on what your sphere of uh, interest is and whether the clubs and their community programs deliver for you really. And I think, as I say, the best ones are, are amazing organisations, and and actually the vast majority are really good now. That's something that we've been speaking about recently, Steve. Is that f- football is so much more than just football, isn't it? It's so important when people look at it and think, oh, it's just a game, it's just a sport. And when you really look at and break it down, and, and it's life-changing for people, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it, it is, you know, there are, there are, you know, on public record, there are people who um, who perhaps have, uh, have, have lived in troubled times and ended up going to prison and have come out of prison and turned themselves around and are actually teaching other vulnerable young people now through the community schemes about uh, right and wrong and about paths to follow and paths to avoid. And they can say things in a way to, to their audience in a way that we simply can't do it because we haven't lived that life. So I think, you know, it, it can be life-changing. It can be life-changing if, we, if you're a young footballer who gets who gets who who sees the opportunity to um, be the best they can be and potentially be a professional footballer, or if not, play at semi-pro level like I did or, or play at, you know, just keep playing as long as you can like most people do, you know. Uh, I think that's one level, but then there are certain... Uh, there are certain people, you know, we had a couple of young um, uh, para, uh, para dis- disabled um, young footballers who I think went to Brazil with the England team um, at one point and, you know, to play in, in the World Cup. You know, these are these are things that if they don't change lives, they give you memories that you look back on for a very long time. Steve, do you think... Um... Footballers that drop out of the professional game at a young age, do you think they get enough support sort of these days to do something else? I think it's very difficult. It was something I remember being released from Blackburn without going back to me all the time. It was a very painful thing. You know, you feel, you do feel like, you you know, your, your world's over. It's a very difficult thing. I think that the role that the community trusts play now is that there are increasing opportunities for for people who are interested in coaching to learn their trade within the umbrella of the football club that perhaps has, has released them, or if not, then go to us, go to a similar club in, in an area where they live, because often young footballers between 16 and 18, for example, will travel off the country and live in digs. Well, you know, it's quite natural for them to go home and there will be a football club there. So they might be playing their football and earning some money as a community coach, and then they might, develop uh, into a more management role um, so the support it could always be more it could always be more and I think you know there'll be thousands of footballers released this summer both youth players and senior pros who who will see a chapter of their lives over you know and it's it's hard to understate how difficult it is for some people to work out what the next stage in their career is. So I'm not sure what would be enough, you know, yeah, whether it's counselling or career training. You know, the PFA now um, offers excellent support um, both during your career and um, um, and at, at the end of your professional career. Um, but you've got to kind of know what you want to do. And often when you come out of the game, you're not sure for a few months what the next steps feel like or look like. You know, some of the guys, before they finish their career, they've either done their coaching badges or 
they're doing a business course with the PFA, so they're quite um, they're quite shored up against it. It's the ones who have just been immersed in football all their life, and then suddenly it comes to an end. That's that's it's difficult for those guys. So a combination of education and counselling, I think, is probably. It sounds a bit. No, I totally agree. With you. I think Rob, you know the situation better than anyone. Yeah, no, so I similar spoke to Steve. The difference was I was only in the game for a year. I had a one-year professional deal. So I was in and out as quick as you can be, really. But I had the same kind of thing, and I agree. I think the people who come from outside, come from the non-leagues, come from the the roots of football and the the not so professional level all the way through, have that have to have that um, external plan as they go in. So I had lots of qualifications all the way up to eighteen that were of a good level. Whereas I've got friends who had come through the whole way through the academy, like yourself. They had neglected that kind of pathway that's there because it's why would why would you do it? You're you're in a football environment. You know you're going to make it, and then suddenly you get chucked off. And he, I I found it hard for the, for the couple of months afterwards. And I had a great summer, enjoyed myself yes. and let my hair down. And and I come back from that, and I knew I knew where I wanted to be. I'd I'd been applying for like business jobs, and I I knew that was something I didn't want to then go into, uh, which had given me that kind of open look on that's why I then went into personal training and got my coaching badges started because I knew that was where I wanted to be whereas people who have come out and have never even considered any of those ideas I, I think it must be hard and I think it takes a year I've got friends who I speak to now um, good friends of mine who, who have only just really started to think about what they want to do going forward and as you say I've got ones who got a great mate um, Joe Wicks he, he's doing uh, stuff at Chelsea Academy so, not Chelsea Academy sorry Chelsea um, Community He's doing that in Chelmsford. And again, he's using his skills, which he's developed all the way through his football career, to benefit the community. I think you're right, mate. And I think, uh, I think there's nothing quite like playing. There's, there's no way around it. There's nothing quite like playing. But if you're an outdoors type and you've got a little bit about you and you, you, know, you want to pass on your, your skills and experience, as you say, Rob, I think it's a great job to be in. It's not, you're never going to be a millionaire from it. But you know what? It, 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 you know most people aren't anyway, and it depends on what your view is. I think I think you're right. I think finding something that you really enjoy doing and then doing it is a massive part of your life. Uh, most, most people never have that privilege, and I think that we sometimes take it too lightly. So you know, I'm was very privileged to work for twenty odd years in a game that I absolutely loved, and I and as you say, equally for others who just come out of the game, it's like I've no idea what I'm going to do now. And that, that is tough. I appreciate every club's uh, different um, and they'll have different, different ways of going around things. But can you explain your role as a CEO of a club and where you sit kind of between the coaching staff, the owners, how it all pulls together? <clears throat> you are right. It is different between uh, from club to club. Um, the charity, where I think most of them are now, where the trusts and foundations are charitable organisations, they have a legal um, uh, legal separation from the club, both financial and um, and operational. However, you know you are the arm of social responsibility for the football club. You know, without the badge, you know you are just, with all due respect, you're just another sports charity. So, you know. I was very fortunate in, in some of my jobs that I was very, very close to either the owner of the football club, uh, in the case of Colchester, uh, 
very close in a sense that he really understood what we were trying to achieve. Um, he didn't, uh, or you know, we didn't always agree on everything that we did, which is absolutely healthy. But I think what he certainly uh, valued was um, the was the ability for us to um, work with young people and be able to develop them as people and footballers, where appropriate, refer them into the football club. So good community programs will have strong relationships with the head of youth or the director of youth or whatever that is. Um, many of the many of the guys who work uh, full-time are at Community Trust will also work on the academy, so they'll have a view of what communities are, you know, what the standard is in the community and also be able to contribute at academy level. So I think you, you occupy that space, which almost brings... The, owner, the owners and the leadership of the football club um, aligned with its um, its community output and its its contribution and responsibility within the local area. Um, obviously, um, in massive clubs, I suspect it's slightly different. Um, but um, some of the, some of the most amazing work, as I say, has gone on in clubs in the Championship Division One, Division Two. Um, Partly because um, brand is brand is important, but less so. Um, you know, it's they're much more local clubs. You know, Plymouth Argyle, for example, is an amazing scheme. Portsmouth has a really good scheme, um, but they're very much focused in their areas. It's slightly different with you know your Manchester United of the world because they're a global brand, and uh, and Liverpool as well to an extent. Um, so it's for me. Um, it's been able to create relationships which work and so you can you can pull on the resources of the football club where, where appropriate in terms of player visits or, or whatever and also be able to articulate what it is that the the trust is doing and why they're doing it and why it benefits the football club and if you've got those ongoing dialogues and relationships i think that um that it's a very healthy thing and as I say, you know, the thing about football clubs is to be the best you can be and to be sustainable and to um, to achieve as much as you can on the pitch. The charity is different. Charities have charitable outputs. And so you have to continually balance those um, um, those uh, indicators, if you like, in a way which that local people understand. And how did that role compare for you, Steve, moving from the community arm? To the commercial arm of Colchester United as overall CEO, it was uh, it was a challenge. Uh, it was a challenge, um, but you know, Mr. Cowling was was very clear that you know that the community was very important to him, uh, and that you know we could perhaps bring um, bring the bring the community to the new stadium as it was then uh, in a way perhaps that we didn't need to in the past. Uh, so. Um, going to the commercial side, you know, we, we created something called Target 10,000, which was around uh, trying to bring new people to the stadium. It was we we developed relationships with clubs and with schools and you know and with all kinds of organisations that you would invite them in on a on a uh, on a day by on a game by game basis, and you, you hope to generate ongoing support from there. Um, Obviously, we had a, a brand new hospitality business that we had to try and uh, come to terms with, and we we continued the work that uh, Marie Partner had done in terms of 
uh, ensuring the the stadium itself was was safe and operational you know that that is a you know you have the responsibility of looking after the fans on the way to the stadium when they're there and when they leave and it's not just about providing a great offering on the pitch it's also about making sure they feel safe and well and looked after so um I, I guess it was a business role with the community face. So, you know, I quite enjoyed that. Um, but the roles um, the roles are often defined by the people themselves. So, you know, if you had a different CEO that came in, then they would have a different focus and they would, you know, potentially drive the club in a different direction. I was fortunate that I'd known Mr Cowling before and I knew what his aspirations felt like at that point and um, tried to ensure that we could deliver that within you know, the values and ethics that, you know, you, you carry on a day-to-day basis. You mentioned hospitality there, Steve. Um, as as CEO of the main club, did you go on away days? You would go to most games, even if they're away? I wouldn't go to all games when they're away, no. Um, I had a, a, a very young family, so I went to some away games. Obviously, it was at every home game. Um, and um, it's... It's a very interesting thing going away, you know. Um, not our, our friends uh, in Norfolk won't thank me for that. I was, I was at Norwich the day that 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 um, the Colchester demolished Norwich, and it was an amazing day for the club. Seven uh, one, yeah. Uh, yeah, it was an amazing day for the club. Um, uh, and there's, there's several sides to it. You see, you know, almost the horror on the faces of the of the Norwich board, you know. And it was still, in fairness, it was still generous and and uh, were very uh, supportive of what we'd done and were you know very hospitable. And yet it was a very difficult day for them. I think Brian Gunn, the manager, got sacked the following week. You know these things play out differently. Um, so it's it, it is a uh, it's a it's a very close environment. You know, and it, I was I was very privileged to go to a number of boardrooms and uh, and you know at Millwall I was always welcome the CEO made a point of saying look whenever you want to come to games you don't have to come to a mall just come in and come into the boardroom you know we were I, I've, I've been very fortunate the question that I was going to ask Steve is the of the away clubs you've been to from a hospitality perspective so the best sandwiches what's the best food that we're <laughs> going to receive which one did you look forward going to the most uh well I Colchester played uh, Blackburn in the FA Cup and uh, obviously it's an old club of mine and I, I can say without any kind of bias the best pies were at Blackburn you know, they, 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 you know I'm not much of a prawn sandwich guy but you know in terms of pies Blackburn does it everyone else is on the prawn sandwiches and you're on the pies for you Steve exactly exactly you don't, you don't get this shape for nothing you have to work at it <laughs> Uh, it all depends. I like, I, you know, Mil- Millwall was very nice. It was always a very warm welcome. The CEO was always there and was always very, was always very supportive. Charlton was very nice when I was there. But it, equally, I remember going up to Peterborough, and you you do feel genuinely looked after and uh, and and welcome. And that, for me, it's, it's two things. You know, the food and all the rest of it is great, but the welcome you get from the board and the, you know, you know, often the manager will come step up and say hello. You know that that is was always more important to me, and some clubs are very warm by nature, uh, and some uh, some less so. You know, so the two things are always are interesting to me. Who does the best pies, and who, who gives the best welcome? <laughs>
yeah, it's really clear you've got a love and passion for football. But do you find it um, hard to like separate those fan feelings you have and then the commercial decisions you have to make for the club? That's a good question. Um, I can honestly say that all the people I work with, you know, I work with uh, at Charlton, for example, I work with a guy who's now the uh, one of the, as a senior figure is a senior figure at Norwich, and the other guy in, in our triumvirate is now the, the the finance director at Middlesbrough. I can honestly say that every day they went in, they tried to do the best for the club, uh, as I'd like to think I did. The best for the club isn't always uh, buying another player because the manager or whoever wants it. It's about being able to do the best you can over the period of the season, about about providing um, the best uh, environment for fans to to watch matches, and to and to always remember that you were simply a custodian of the club. The fans own the club, really. You know, without their support, you you have nothing. But you know. As a as a fan myself, I, I would always go, well, just buy him, just buy him, just buy him, <laughs> without a thought of who's going to pay for that, and and it's not it's not easy. And I think for for me, the 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 best thing that could come out of this season is that is that uh, Colchester gets gets promoted back to Division One. If that's still possible, uh, obviously that Liverpool get the get what's so richly deserved to them. But equally, you know. The, the clubs who have been making a commitment to their community over the last 20 or 30 years continue to do so. Um, and I think it is, diff- it is difficult. I, I always try to, when I was doing the, those jobs, I always try to look at, um, look at situations through the fans' perspective first to try and understand what their position would be. But at the end of it, you know, you've got to make a decision which you believe is is genuinely best for the business. Um, and sometimes you get it right, and sometimes you get it wrong. I was, I was interested in what you said about my phone now. Sorry, lad. <laughs> <laughs> Don't get this on Sky Sports, do you, Steve? As you say, is that that's not the England job, is it? Yeah, we, we're just getting a call in. <laughs> Cooper's rent. Someone wants to buy the rights to it. <laughs> it's interesting what you say about like signing players because like you see supporters are like, oh, why haven't we signed such and such for like ten million of certain clubs? And I'm like, do you know? And they're like, why hasn't this been concluded? And you think how long it takes to sort of buy a house, and then you're you're exchanging a lot of money. People just don't understand, do they? No, no, it's 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 a lot of money and. You know the the process is quite clear that you really need to gain an agreement between clubs of what the value is of selling a player and buying a sell, which can take weeks. Um, and then you, in theory, then you go to the player and say, and ask him whether he'd like to move. So I know it happened to me that we went to a particular centre forward in the north of England. We toed and froed around money, um, and the clubs finally came to an agreement. And we went to the the player concerned and offered him, I think, a very reasonable amount. Um, and he just said, "I just don't want to go. I'm happy here." Were you trying to bring Wayne Rooney to Colchester, Steve? Uh, no, no, Wayne was just a little bit out of our league. Um, no, I just think that people need to be, and that's why you, you would tend to go after four or five players if you if you're after a particular position, because you can never guarantee that one's going to come off and. 
my my role in it was was limited. You know, often uh, the manager and the owner would make would decide. It's less so now. Would make decisions on the the, the targets they were after, and then we would pursue them through the, the proper channels. Um, and sometimes it'd be concluded very quickly, and sometimes it wouldn't. And obviously, if you if you're picking up free agents from other places, then it's much it's a much quicker process. Um, so yeah, it's um, it is time consuming, particularly if you do it the right way. It's time consuming, um, but you know, from the player's point of view, it's often a complete change of geography for a two-year contract. Because you know the lower down the divisions, you don't tend to offer four and five-year contracts, and, and you know, and it is a big decision for them. So if you're of a mind where you like to go and see the world and go, and, you know, go and see different parts of the country and enjoy it, that's great. But if you're a home bird, then obviously, then sometimes it's it's a bit more of a, a difficult uh, decision to make. You've got to think about your kids' schools and everything as well. Like it's a lot. Absolutely. A lot goes into the decision, doesn't it? Absolutely. You know, and you, you're you're often pulling. Uh, your partner or your wife away from uh, a very stable environment, some some somewhere where they know absolutely nobody, and you know, and so you're out and you're training and working, and it it is very difficult on, on a number of levels for players, and uh, the the decisions are a lot more complicated than who's offering the most money. I, in my experience. Steve, I feel like we should give a mention to Paul Lambert. You worked with him while you were at Colchester. Uh, I'm not sure if he was involved with his appointment or not, but he obviously left Colchester and went to Norwich and managed to get them back-to-back promotions to get Norwich into the Premier League. As a coach, did you see something different the way he was coaching? Um, I wasn't involved in the appointment of Paul. Paul had arrived a couple of months, three months before I did. Um, I I think... um, uh, Robbie Carling and Marie had, uh, had brought Paul to the club. I was around when he went to Norwich, and he went to Norwich the week after the game we've already spoken about, or two weeks after the game we've already spoken about. Um, he he had an air of somebody who had been very successful. You know, you've got to remember this was Colchester United. He was a European Champions League winner. You know, and yeah. whilst he'd never talk about it unless you asked him. He had an air of somebody who played in front of 90,000 people, who played for his country, who played for Celtic. You know, he he just had an air of um, leadership around him. He wasn't everybody's cup of tea. I liked him very much. Um, Ian Culverhouse did most of the coaching on the training field. He was very well organised and a real thinker. And uh, Gary Castle was uh, a football operations manager. Um, so Gary did the logistics, really, um, the, a lot of the backroom stuff. So I spent a lot of time working with Gary. I think Gary's now head of the academy at QPR. Um, and they, they, were, they, they understood their roles and, and performed, them, performed them well, really. You could see they were very positive. They always made positive substitutions. Um, they ground teams down. They played with width. Um, and so there was a combination of uh, of confidence and being well organised, which takes clubs a long way. Um, he, I didn't see the Norwich thing coming. Um, I, obviously, it happened very quickly. Um, and you know, you've got to remember, it's not just the manager who goes. 
all three of them went at the same time. So without going into uh, too much detail, um, we asked Joe Dunn whether he'd step in as caretaker manager. Joe immediately, to his eternal credit, said yes um, and was supportive. But he made it clear that it he, he was a transitional thing until a new manager came in. So um, uh, for, Joe was a club servant, had been a player for a number of years, uh, eventually took his opportunity as manager later on. Um, and it, it's a big hole. When it happens quickly, it is a big hole and you've got, you know, you've got to get on it. And you're literally at that moment, you are scratching around. It's like I would imagine that you have no one for the job. You don't know where to look and you're left with this hole that you've got to fill pretty quickly. And Well, I wouldn't say scratching around because Joe was was excellent. Joe had been an excellent youth coach. He was destined to be a manager, in my opinion. So it wasn't it was he wasn't a second rate choice. He, He was it was testament to the club that had built an infrastructure. And actually, we'd we'd built a we'd, we'd built a scenario that actually a manager would bring in two other people. If they left, we would allow another three people to come in, uh, which is what happened when ADP Roy came in. You know, so the rest of the club remained solid, and I think most clubs are like that now. Um, and we had a, a youth development department which was solid. We had a you know we had a community program which was solid. Nothing was changing it was just the, the the direction at the very top in terms of who put you know who you put on the pitch and how you play um but yeah that um oh we're not coming to work all right okay is uh, it's a difficult thing you know and uh, it's a it was great credit to the owner and the infrastructure of the club that um, we had somebody like joe who um, was as committed and talented as he was and would step in and and actually you're on a, you're on a hiding to nothing you know, we'd gone three for three, the managers leave, you know, you know, it's impossible to keep winning all the time. And who's it going to fall against? Well, it's going to be fall against that Joe Dawn. Well, actually, Joe, Joe did an amazing job for the time that he was there. And I'd like to think was rewarded later on by being offered the manager's job. What, what advice would you give young people, Steve, who are looking for a career within football, but outside of playing it? I, mean, I think there are so many careers now within the charitable side. You, you need to think about what it is you want. If you want to coach, then obviously uh, get your badges. But also, I mean, I was really, really fortunate when I was at Arsenal. I shadowed um, Pat Rice and Geordie Armstrong for a couple of years. And, I, you know, I started off just by sitting down in the corner and said, do you mind if I just watch your sessions? And because they were so talented, they were like, of course. Uh, you know, I was doing my coaching badges at the time and eventually got what is now the A licence. Um, and, you know, they said, would you like to do it? Would you like to take a warm up? And I was just picking cones up. I was an A licence coach picking cones up and but learning every all the time. The qualifications and what they what they teach you is really important. But then you work with some amazing people who show you how those qualifications and how those principles are are embedded in everyday life and uh, and everyday football life and then you you know in my in my opinion you try to emulate the best as best you can so if you're going down the coaching side there's two things get your badges and try to watch as many good coaches as you possibly can and then get people to watch you you know just say would you mind giving me a view of what you've seen you know it have I got the character for it? Am I outgoing enough for it? Have I, 
I've, what's the technical knowledge that I need to brush up on? And there are people out there now, and the FA do it, that will you know, mentor people coming through. Uh, on the other side, if, if it's, you know, it's very much like any other, you know, any other charity, really, you know, you work out whether you want to work in, you know, whether it's, um, whether it's the social care side, whether it's the education side, whether it's the football development piece, you know, and, you know, you gain, you gain a lot of experience by volunteering. I can't, I can't underestimate, I can't overestimate it. You know, it, you volunteer, you work with good people, they see what you're like and, if, if a, an opportunity comes up, then, you know, you're first in their mind, you know, and it takes time and it takes commitment. But if you love it, you do it. Solid advice, Steve. From a coaching or mentoring angle, what's a single piece of advice that you would give to others? I, I think the, the first thing is the players are the most important things. You are there to, to develop the players. It's not about you. It's about you facilitating facilitating player development. But the, but and if you start there and think of what the big picture is, so what do you need your players to be able to do to improve them? You know, do you need to improve the passing of the team in general and the passing of individuals? Is it about about learning to defend more more resolutely and concentrate more, and, or is it about turnover? You know, they're the technical things that you can pick out. So if you start with the big picture and think and have a philosophy about how you believe, you personally believe uh, the game should be played, and translate that on a team and then unit and then individual level, then you're going a long way to improving players within a framework. But yeah, um, the best coaches I've ever I've ever worked with put the players first. Cooperman's rant. Right, so my social media timelines are full of news about the results in the Bundesliga, and I've even seen someone claiming to support Borussia Mönchengladbach. Can't say it, can't spell it. I don't really know how you can support it. And then it got me thinking with a word like Borussia Mönchengladbach. It got me confused about what's happening to football and why we all love it. Well, then I had a think, and it reminded me that football is a working class game for working class people who enjoy a game. It's about supporters going through turnstiles to watch a game, see their friends, the atmosphere, the lights, the beers, the laughs, and so much more. But one thing it's not about is prioritising rich over poor. And with the Premier League potentially coming back, I fear that Planet Behind Closed Doors is so wrong. Um, cricket, rugby, hockey, many other sports, we're not hearing about them returning probably because they don't bring the same amount of revenue to TV and commercial companies. Why should top pros be able to suddenly play football? Now things potentially are looking up. Yet the people who have been out risking their lives to work kind of have a game of five-a-side with their mates. I believe football should start back when it's considered safe for everyone to play at all levels and when supporters can be in attendance. I get it that with social distancing, stadiums would just have to be reduced if they want to play. You can't just ban supporters and play behind closed doors. I think it's difficult to ask clubs to lay games on, say, in the future, if there's no supporters there. How do they bring in revenue? Um, laying games on obviously costs money, and eventually the money will run out. I think for top pros just to play is a little bit of an insult because you've got 
football at all levels, no matter if it's Everton, Great Oakley, Arsenal ladies, Little Oakley under 10s, it's everyone's game. If you disagree, that's fine, but don't use the line, it's better than no football, because I don't really think that's true. Over to you. Thoughts, Steve? I don't know about you, I don't know about you, Ben. I'm going crazy. You know, I'm desperate to see football. Um, and uh, I'm desperate to, to be out there playing football with my, with my little boys. And um, we've never been anywhere like this. And uh, your safety point is very well made. Um, but most people watch the Premier League over any other league because it's one of the best leagues in the world. And there will always be people who want to watch it. Um, and I think you should separate um, watching it from playing. Um, you know, nobody would miss um, Steve Bradshaw playing football on the park with his two boys. That you know, let's be honest, <laughs> it's just not that important. Um, but not being able to see some of the amazing talent that's in the Premier League and the Championship at the moment, I think people would miss, and great numbers of them would miss. But you can't beat safety. Safety is the most important thing, and you know. Overall, I don't dispute a lot of what you say, Ben. I, I completely agree with both. I completely agree with both of you, but I think I think it's important that it has come back because I think at some point, um, from a economical point of view, we have to keep moving. I appreciate they're going to be losing money for clubs to be putting on games, but the actual getting people watching TV again, getting people involved, getting people. I know gambling is not a good thing, but that kind of thing brings more money through. There's, there's a lot of money coming through by putting the games back on. That's why the government's been quite keen to seem to push it through, which from what I've been reading. Um, and I think it's harder lower down, but the top end, as as Steve's quite rightly said, everyone wants to watch it. Who doesn't want to watch the football? Like Whether there's fans in the stadium, you still cheer at home. It's strange when you hear the ball hit the net and you can really hear the sound of the net go and you can't hear any crowd noise. Um, and the uh, the goal music has returned, much to I'm sure your anger, Ben. But I, th- I think it's really important to keep people um, seeing the games and the fact that they're offering free coverage of all of the games, I think is important because then anyone can, can see the games. But it's a hard one. I don't think you're ever going to win. You're never going to please everyone. I will just add that it is a really hard thing to call. Like, I'm not. It is. I'm not saying it should be like this or it should be like that. I just feel a little bit sorry for like young footballers who are probably going to get released because they can't afford to pay them anymore. But yet they're seeing other people playing. I just think it's unfair. What I think some people miss is in an environment with professional athletes and professional clubs, you can to a certain degree control it. So w- they can put in measures in place. I read that they're uh, thinking about putting auditors at each Premier League team for when they train to monitor that they're keeping the two metres apart. There's going to be weekly testing, obviously, for all the players. To bring that down to grassroots level would be impossible. In, in an environment of just the Premier League or just professional football, there, I think it would be easier to monitor. But when you bring that down to grassroots level, how would it be possible for your, your Sunday league teams and your Saturday teams to turn and say, right, we have no fans in the stadium and we don't have people to come and watch and, and players can't, you know, I think it's really, really then hard to police. So I think in an environment where they're balancing the amount of joy that it would bring people from a mental health perspective, watching football again on the TV um, versus 
how how they can control the virus, there is some benefit to seeing football back. Football brings hope. That's the thing. Football brings hope and allows us to dream that things could be better and different, and you know, allow us to to look at you know incredible talent. Um, it also brings hope through playing. So, Steve, the first question is, Ronaldo or Messi and why? Uh, Messi, because he has a way of changing games uh, and being involved in them uh, on a more central level. Um, but, you know, it's like saying, do you want an Aston Martin or a Rolls-Royce? You know, <laughs> Either way, it's, it's no bad thing. Messi for me. Your favourite player of all time? George Best. Georgie Best. Great shout. Great answer. We like that, Ben, don't we? Tell you one. George could change it. George, I never saw him live. I only saw him on TV. But he played in a very poor team at Manchester United and he kept them alive. And he brought joy to, to people. Like my dad, who still talks about him now uh, in a way that thousands of other footballers we can't remember the names of anymore. That's no disrespect to them. George changed the face of football. Best game you've ever watched live? Best game you ever played in? Uh, the best game I ever watched live um, was probably that 7-1 game. Incredible. Incredible to see those Colchester United fans uh, just delirious with excitement and happiness. Um, uh, I, uh, I played for Potter's Bar Town versus, uh, I don't know, some other team and we we drew 4-4 and very selfishly I scored a hat-trick mm. um, and uh, we were 3-0 three, three up 4-3 down and we scored with two minutes to go to make it 4-4 four, four. and it, it was it was a game of two teams which were of non-league standard patchy in ability and, and uh, uh, patchy in ability and direction but you know what? Just a brilliant, fun game to be part of. And, you know, as they say, the draw was the right result in the end. I don't know whether it was or it wasn't, but it was amazing to be part of it. You scored those three from the wing, Steve? Uh, I was playing the middle of midfield at that point because uh, I, couldn't, I couldn't run fast anymore. First football kit you ever owned and the number or name on the back, if there was one? Uh, it was a Manchester United kit, actually. My dad bought it for me. Oh, is there something you uh, want to tell us, with, Steve? This is now's the time. If there's something uh, you want to uh, share with the group, uh, my family are uh, right-thinking and decent folk on the whole. <laughs> but my dad's a Manchester United fan. Good man, um, sensible. So he bought me a Manchester United kit. He, my mum, affixed uh, very badly a George Best number onto it. Brilliant. Um, so I had the Manchester United kit uh, to my eternal shame. <laughs> But um, I went up market, I think, from there and uh, and got a Norwich kit because Admiral, Admiral at the time were, um, were flying and had all the best kits. Best coach that's inspired you and why? Uh, I've been fortunate to, to work with many. Steve Foley, when he was at Colchester United and went to Ipswich, was remarkable for his... Uh, for the simple way that he expressed very different... the very difficult concepts. As I said... Jordy Armstrong uh, and Pat Rice were incredible. Um, um, they're the three really that stand out for me, though. I've been very fortunate to watch an awful lot of people work. Um, you know, I, I've 
I listened to Willy Van Hulk when he came over donkeys years ago and put on a masterclass. And Ajax at that point was so far ahead of where we were. Uh, was in, it was just remarkable. And, you know, and for a country as small as Holders to still produce and the amount of international world-class players is great credit to, to their, their coaching system. Um, so he was great to watch. Um, yeah, I think that those are the four really that, that I saw uh, I've been incredibly impressed with, impressed with for very different reasons. Excellent, Steve. That just leaves us to say thank you so much for giving up your time and chatting with us. It's been a pleasure anytime and uh, it's just great to talk, to talk football. Thanks, fellas. Cheers, Steve. Thank you very much, buddy. Cheers, really no appreciate that. Cheers, pal. Uh, no problem. Great fun. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. If you've got any questions or you'd like to appear on the show, send us an email to pod at coachingfromthesofa.co.uk. 